HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, the best-selling Irish single malt in the U.S. The Sexton is an unexpected modern malt for the everyman, rich in hue, approachable in taste, and memorable in character. Learn more at thesexton.com. Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been with the station for over eight years, 350 shows, and it is the most consistent thing in my life. Every Tuesday at 3, I know to be here in studio, but I also get the the privilege of meeting such amazing people, artists, artisans within the industry. I get to learn a new factoid, a, a new way of life from these wonderful people. And I hope you do too by listening and that you donate to our summer drive. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and click on the beating heart. And we'd even appreciate monthly recurring donations to any show on the network. You could designate to the food scene, the speakeasy, and that many more. You're listening to In the Drink on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, back to chat about all things wine and spirits. Uh, when I am not hosting In the Drink, you can find me at Fausto Restaurant. Come visit me to our uh, relatively new restaurant over in Park Slope. Uh, we are open seven days a week and now for brunch as well. Uh, I'm, I'm also a partner. I'm going to give myself another plug, if that's okay with you guys, uh, at Celestine uh, down in Dumbo, right on the water. Absolutely beautiful view. Uh, of a really focus on coastal wines, and uh, we'll love to see you there as well. Um, I'm excited about today's show. This week, we're welcoming back Victoria James to the show. Victoria uh, is a friend. She's the beverage director at Coat here in New York City, which is an outstanding restaurant. I've been there multiple times. It is a Korean steakhouse um, with extraordinarily high-quality meat and great wines. She's also the author of Drink Pink, a celebration of rosé. And uh, she has a fascinating background. Uh, if you want to learn more about Victoria's background, you can listen to uh, one of our previous episodes, which Victoria was a guest on. And you, you'll hear all about how she became a sommelier at the tender age of 21. Um, but since she is a rosé expert um, and she is on a personal mission to get people to drink 
real rosé, really good rosé. I want to talk to uh, Victoria about rosé. She's here in the studio to talk about real real rosé. Welcome back to In the Drink. It's great to have you back. Thank you for having me back, Joe. Uh, so you wrote a book on uh, on rosé. What got your interest? What sparked your interest in rosé? What made you want to write a book about this? I know you have many passions in the world of wine. Um, I know you're, you're the go-to Swiss uh, expert for Swiss wines. Um, you know your, uh, your Beaujolais, your Burgundy, you know lots of great wines, but why, uh, why, why rosé? Yeah, um, why the pink drink? It's a great question. And uh, so, you know, the first sip of wine I ever had um, as a kid actually was rosé. And it was from my grandmother's uh, glass that was sort of her porch sipper. It was tons of crushed ice and uh, white Zinfandel from the box just dumped on top. And she would sip this white Zinfandel on ice, uh, read CD romance novels, and I just thought it was the coolest thing of all time. And so I was tasked with filling up her glass. And so whenever I would go to the kitchen to dump some more, you know, white Zin from the box into her glass, I would always sneak a few sips. And, you know, it was, I remember thinking as a kid, it was, it was pretty gross. It was like very sour, tart, like my palate was not at all ready for wine, uh, let alone you know, White Zinfandel. Um, but, you know, there's sort of, you know, you attach these memories to something that's very, very, um, you know, tender in a way. And so later when I was becoming a sommelier, rosé was always something that had a lot of that, those warm memories. Um, and I quickly realized that rosé could be good. And I found that it was so funny that all these sommeliers were drinking these really great rosés, um, you know, of course, Tampier and other Bandol rosés, but there were these cult classics like Cota and, you know, um, Valentini's Cherisuolo. And I was like, why has no one talked about this? It's almost like a sommelier secret that, yes, we like rosé. And so it was the sommelier secret rosé, and it was White Zinfandel, and it was as if no one was connecting these two or talking about it. So I consulted on an article for New York Magazine about rosé, and from there, a literary agent approached me, and she was like, hey, do you want to write a book on rosé? And at first I said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. You know, being a young woman in the industry, you don't necessarily want to be pegged as the pink girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then luckily my fiancé, Lyle, sort of talked me into it. He was like, you know... Um, can I curse on the radio? Curse away. Okay. He was like, oh, now I feel self-conscious. F them. <laughs> uh, you know, don't we'll, worry we'll, about we'll it. We'll dub in the full curse. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> that would sound more badass. Um, I think it has like, curses have to have spontaneity. You know, when you lose that, you lose the whole meaning. Um, so anyway, he was like, you know, forget about them. Just write what you want to. Talk about the producers that you care about, that sommeliers care about, that matter in the world of rosé. And don't take these huge, um, don't talk about these huge companies and don't give them the time of the day. Don't take these bribes and incentives to do book plugs. And as a result, I was able to put out a book that I really believed in. And it talked about everything I loved about Rosé, from the producers to the food that I want to eat with it, you know, with recipes from Alice Waters and Jacques Pepin. And to me, that's what Rosé is. It's fun. It's approachable but it also can be very good um, with a sense of place and purpose. So it's just about, as much about good wine as it was about rosé. Exactly. And this book came out last year, right? 
It did, Did yes. you find that in the book sales trajectory, it kind of follows the way that a lot of people drink rosé? Like, is it... <laughs> I feel like people, everyone should buy this book, by the way. It's an outstanding, uh, it's just a great book and it's really fun to read. And it, it you know, it gives you lots of great information about rosé. But have you found Thank there's you. been like an uptick in the warmer weather yeah, months? Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. So last year we had great sales throughout the summer. And then come into the fall, everyone sort of tucked away their bottles of rosé. And it seems as if no one was buying the book. And I thought, oh no, like this is going to be a disaster. No one's ever going to buy this book again. And then it upticked a little bit in the holidays, you know, it's like a stocking stuffer. And now all of a sudden, you know, sales are back on. So you're correct in that (laughs) even people think that a pink book should only be read for three months out of the year. It's ridiculous. So I'd love to talk about how we got here to this day where we're even talking about what a real rosé is. You know, I feel like 10 years ago, people were saying, it's okay, you can drink rosé. And that was like the normal thing for years and years. But now we're talking about real rosé. So I'd love for you to help us get to the place where we are today by taking us back to the ancient history. Uh, I've read some stuff that you've written about the the old history of rosé. And so if you could give us a summary uh, as to the, the, the rosé through the years... Uh, I'd love uh, not to put you on the spot, (laughs) but it's so interesting and you've written so well about it. Okay, so I'll do a quick summary. um, But yes, the book does go in more detail. So please pick up that copy. Um, So let's see. So Rosé, a lot of people don't know that it was actually the first wine. It was before white and before red. Um, And the reason for this was that grapes grew wild. um, And when they would collect all the grapes, they weren't necessarily sorting out whites and reds. And you would get this light pink color. Um, and even when they did figure out a way to create red wine, rosé still remained the beverage of choice for centuries. Um, you know, when a lot of these Greek philosophers would have their meetings, uh, if they drank just red wine by itself, they would get too drunk and they would fight and they would not solve anything. And so in a lot of old scripts, you can actually see they, they suggest to take this red wine and water it down so it's that a pale pink color. Um, and rosé was a solution. If you drink rosé, you will not fight, and the meeting will be more productive. Um, and so fast forward years later from ancient Greece, and we're in the south of France. And this is where wine entered France. and um, The port city of Marseille? Through Marseille, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and back then it was called Massalia, and uh, the Fokians actually brought it around and grapevines to the south of France in Marseille, Massalia. And of course, when they planted grapevines, the first wines they made were pink, and they were rosé. So rosé was also not only the first wine in existence, but also the first wine in France. Um, and these pink wines of Massalia became incredibly famous around the Mediterranean. Um, the Romans used their super connected trade routes to kind of bring it all around. And so there's a reason that people associate rosé with the south of France, because that's where it started. That's where all wine started. Um, and, you know, even years, years later, when, you know, wine was widespread, of course, all throughout France, even when Parisians would go down to vacation in the south of France, you know, rosé and this color was associated with summer and this lifestyle. And of course, only the wealthy could afford to vacation in the south of France. So it also became associated over time with luxury and this idea that those who were well-to-do could enjoy this beverage during the summer. 
And then, of course, uh, Americans. You know, we love all things French, the beret, the baguette, and wine. And so a lot of prominent Americans, you know, I think prominent is an interesting word. It, it can be Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt with their wine project or the fat Jew or Instagram influencers that go to the South of France and take a picture on a yacht holding a bottle of rosé. And um, all of these people, you know, over time started this trend uh, and rosé became popular. But before that in the U.S., we know it wasn't necessarily popular. It was actually passé. Um, it was weird because there was a lot of it being imported, right? There was <laughs> uh, certainly whatever uh, boxed white Zinfandel that you, you're... Uh, your grandma was drinking and my aunt as yeah. well, uh, <laughs> even at restaurants sometimes. Um, and there was Lancers and Mateus mm-hmm. uh, and probably some Rosé Lambrusco. Oh, uh, yeah. I as, forgot about that. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, these, these are like these like sweet, industrially produced, inexpensive wines where um, I guess the the people in the know look down on them. But to a lot of people, that was like their entry into wine. Right. And I think that's so important, you know, um, that, you know, you shouldn't frown upon everyone's entry into wine. Um, I think the people that usually start with their first sip of wine is Burgundy or Bordeaux. I'm like, all right, dude, like chill. (laughs) Um, it's like, you don't want to start that way. You kind of want to start at the bottom and work your way up, um, in many things in life, but you're correct in that there was all of this imported industrial swill, um, Mateus and Lancers from Portugal was specifically made sweet and targeted towards the young and female population because they thought, you know, women, of course, liked sugar, of course. And um, then years later, of course, in California, they started with White Zinfandel. And actually, what a lot of people don't know is they think the story is that Bob Trinchero from Sutter Home had a stuck fermentation and he didn't know what to do with it. Um, and so he decided to just pass it off, um, and create the sweet rosé and, and bring it to the market. And that's partially true, but it's only a little bit of the story. And actually before that, he was already making white Zinfandel, um, and selling it in the tasting room and to a few clients. And his first attempts at making rosé or white Zinfandel was to strengthen his red wine. And it was really a byproduct. So he was using the Sennier method. But he actually was very much a Francophile, and he did want to create something that was similar to the rosés of the south of France and by Marseille. And so he actually nicknamed it Wall de Perdri, which means Eye of the Partridge. And that's the name that's given to rosé in the Middle Ages. Um, it's named after the color of a partridge's eyes and death's throats. So when you strangle a partridge, their oh. eyes turn bloodshot red. It's horrifying. That's the <laughs> furthest thing from drinking wine on a yacht in the south of France. You can imagine. <laughs> Dead partridges. You know, well, the Middle Ages was a rough time in France. And um, it was a lot of hunting as well. And mm-hmm. for some reason, the color of the wine reminded them of strangled partridges. And not, that's not exactly <laughs> a name that could have, like, massive... You're not going to, like, sell <laughs> millions of cases a year, <laughs> the strangled... Partridge eye wine. So that's actually why. So he put, so Bob Trinchero from Sutterham called his wine, Walter Perdri, the strangled partridge wine. And after one year, the government was like, yeah, you can't call your wine that. (laughs) So it stopped existing and he called it White Zinfandel. Mm -hmm. So that was his sort of transition. But, you know, I think that his, you know, his heart was in the right place at first. Um, And then, you know, 
then the stuck fermentation thing occurs, and then they're just mass producing this bulk. So we had like a wine. lot of sweet wine left. Yeah. The first year he was doing a controlled amount, and then he yeah. had the stuck fermentation. So he's like, oh man, what am I going to do with all of this stuff? Right? <laughs> exactly. I love that in Italy, they still use that eye of the partridge for red Vinsanto, the yes. Occhio di Pernice, which yeah. is pretty, I, I don't see a lot of it around. It's so crazy. They use it there, and a couple of champagne producers, which is where it originated, um, still use it, like Doyard, Charles Doyard, mm-hmm. um, and his wines. And also in Switzerland, in the Neuchâtel Canton, they use it for Pinot Noir Rosé, um, and it's it's crazy. <laughs> That's a weird. Yeah, it's weird. I, it's funny. Like I always, I knew with Vinsanto that it was the Eye of the Partridge, but I I didn't know it was in the Throes of Death. That is that is new information for me. And yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wish I could un- unknow that. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, so we have this whole, there's a lot of people drinking mm-hmm. yucky, or let's just not say yucky, but like mass produced, <laughs> slightly sweet and expensive rosé, right. both imported and uh, made in the States. Mm-hmm. And when I, I just remember like 10, 15 years ago, there's like all, all these articles like, it's okay, you can drink rosé. <laughs> rosé can be dry, like yeah. that, you know, and it doesn't have to be mass mm-hmm. produced. Like, when did that start, change start to occur on a, uh, uh, a, a bigger scale. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, um, I, I won't pretend I'm, you know, the most experienced person here. And so for my book, I interviewed a lot of sommeliers who were working throughout the nineties. Um, you know, so for example, Raj Parr was saying that when he was, um, a sommelier in San Francisco in the nineties, there was no rosé on wine list, and you would not even think to ask for a rosé. That was something that was drank in a cafe, Sure, sommeliers might have like a bottle of Tampier here and there, but the only rosé that was on wine list was rosé champagne. No exception. And then early 2000s, it kind of became a little bit more mainstream and popular. And really what sparked the transition um, were these really big influencers like Chateau Miraval. You know, whether or not you like the wine, you have to admit that it brought it mainstream mm-hmm. um, and it made it approachable. And then sommeliers started to back back it. And, um, I mean, the, a domain ought as well. Domain art and, you know... S- similar to, like, Santa Margarita Pinot Grigio, where it's, yeah. like, maybe technically correct, and there's... And not not inexpensive, right? Not and so, ought. ought. <laughs> yes. Not inexpensive. So you think, like, there's a, a, a veneer of quality. With it. So that's the biggest problem. So the problem with America is we went from Sutter Home White Zinfandel to really expensive, luxury, technically correct wine, and then there was this huge pendulum swing. And the sommeliers, you know, were kind of like, okay, well, what about the in-between? Because, you know, for years, good rosé was being imported in tiny, tiny quantities. I remember when I was talking to Kermit Lynch for the book, he first imported rosé in the 70s. And it was Domaine Joguet Chinon Rosé from the Loire. And he said the first few cases he brought in, no buy a bottle. It was just his house wine. He had to drink it. (laughs) And it was something like he had to... force people to take it. He would give away bottles for free. No one wanted it. And Tompier too, all these producers. So it was something that maybe a few cool people in the new, in the know drank, but for the most part, no one drank Grower Rosé. It was either White Zinfandel or it was these big, huge luxury brands. And it's very similar, I think, to, you know, what champagne was like 10, mm-hmm. 15 years ago. If you walked into a wine shop, you know, maybe not a wine shop, in, in New York, like one of the, you know, big ones, but there were what the five main brands and that's it. 
Um, and now you see all of this grower champagne and you see a lot of the big houses do also as well doing very compelling things. Um, but I think rosé still is slowly emerging to go more towards quality, more towards real rosé and more towards growers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And I, and it's been fun to see that sort of happen and like emerge in places where people weren't focused on rosé and, uh, and now there's actually like some pretty high quality, you know, where there, there's maybe even no tradition of it. Right. Um, and so Speaking of that, like, where are some of the places in the world that you think are making exciting rosé out of the established norm, right? So we know that Provence, you know, makes some really beautiful rosé and a lot mm. that that is normal rosé. Yeah. Uh, but where, where are some surprising rosés? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that I kind of want to preach to everyone is to get outside of the Provence bubble. And yes, there are some good rosés that are being made there still, but actually like the majority of it, 99.9% of it is swill. Like because they're using the Provence name and they're genetically engineering these light pink colors and most of it's swill. There are obviously a few good producers that I talk about in the book that are great. Um, but most of it's just using the name. So I would actually look to other regions where you can find better value and better products. Um, so some cool options are you can, of course, the Loire has some really, really great stuff um, from Chinon to Sancerre. Um, and you can, outside of the Loire as well, um, there's some really cool things in Champagne like Rosé de Rizé. I was going to ask you about that in the second (laughs) segment, but how interesting is that? I had... It's so cool. My first one relatively recently. Yeah, I think the... um, So so Rosé de Rizé is dry, still champagne. That's like a Couture de Champenois, but... Exactly. But, but rosé. Exactly. And it's from the Aube in the south. Mm-hmm. It's from a small little village and it's dry Pinot Noir rosé. And it's usually like you can find some examples with a good bit of age and it's like nothing else. I think someone once described it. The aroma is like walking through Paris in the rain with all the plant trees. It's just like this really beautiful, like fresh, um, you know, wet leaf smell. And yeah. it's like no other rosé. It's amazing. I want to drink more of it. It's hard, right? There's maybe 20 producers or something. Of recent, yeah. Right? If that. I, if that. I think there's probably at least, I think I've tried five that are in the U.S. Uh-huh. It's hard to find. Hard to find. Um, but they're really great. And then, you know, we were just talking about it. But of course, you know, Swiss um, Neuchâtel Rosé, the Wall de Perdrie is really great. Um, also Pinot Noir. And that's really interesting to try. And then, of course, Italy. I feel like people are yes. always focusing on France. Italy. <laughs> Italy makes, you know, rosé or rosato, too. And it can be really great. Um, and I feel especially like... Especially from indigenous grapes in especially Italy. Especially from indigenous yes. grapes. Yeah, when they bring in the international varieties, you don't do it. <laughs> but, you know, and I, you know, my family's Italian, too. And I think there's still this stigma. For some reason, it's okay for you know, to be a French man and drink rosé, but in Italy, it's still very much like you can't be a manly man and drink pink wine, <laughs> which is ridiculous. To get, get over yourself, Italian. <laughs> I know. Italians. Get over yourself. <laughs> Seriously. So of course, like there's the cult classics, like Cherisuolo, um from Abruzzo. And then there's that really cool, is it rosé? Is it not rosé? Ramato style from mm. Friuli, which I technically consider rosé. That's like, an interesting... That is a very interesting subject to preach because a lot of times... So mm-hmm. what, what is a rosé? 
So this is interesting. Some people think that a rosé is a pink wine made from red grapes. But there are examples so that are different. So Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris is technically a white grape, but it has copper pink skins. So if you leave it in contact with the skins for a bit, it picks up this really, really light rosé color. And in northeastern Italy, they make this Romano style. A lot of people think of it as an orange wine. Because it's a white grape white grape with right. skin contact, but it's not but really it's, white. It's not really white. It's pink. And in addition to that, there are some people that make styles that are very much orange and undeniably so. Mm-hmm. But people often forget that for quite some time, they've been making Pinot Gris Rosé in Ruri in the Loire Valley in France. And they consider it a rosé. They don't consider it orange by any means. And I think that the orange wine style kind of, it, it gave birth or it's really become popular in northeastern Italy, which is why they associate it with such. Um, but I was talking to Jean Paolo Venica from Venica and Venica, and he was saying that he more considers it a rosé. Um, is it Yesera or Jessera? His Jessera, yeah. Jessera. Or Yesera, I don't know. Um, so I very much consider that a rosé. And, you know, there are really cool examples all throughout Italy of some really great, cool climate examples that are balanced, have great acidity, and are awesome with, like, all of the local rich, fatty pasta, meats, cheeses, it's just the best thing ever. Now, I realize at the top of the show we said we're going to talk about what makes a real rosé. Mm-hmm. So we've figured out what it, we got through the history, what is a rosé, but how do you define, I mean, in rosé is made all over the world in many different styles, right? right. There are some, like the cherisuolo, which are, which are uh, tend to be a little darker, mm-hmm. um, and some that are almost as clear as a, a, and light as a white wine. How do you figure out, how do you decide what is a real rosé? Right. I mean, you know, so this is obviously open to interpretation and it should be a conversation. It should not just be Victoria James saying, this is a real rosé and don't listen to anyone else. Um, but I want to know what you think. <laughs> you're, you're, the, you're, you're, you're our rosé expert for Heritage Radio. So in my, in my personal opinion, what I found from trying rosés all over the world and doing my research is that just like red and white wine, real rosé holds a sense of place and a purpose. Um, Things that I consider to be real about real rosé is, one, it's made for the sake of making rosé. It's not made from the rotten grapes. It's not made from the underripe grapes. It's not, oh, we have this leftover pink juice. What should we do with it? It's actually, you know, a grower will say, this plot of vines is perfect for rosé, because of the aspect, the soils, et cetera, and it's made for that purpose. Uh, Secondly, it is also a wine. It's not a laboratory concoction. And what I mean by that is, you know, there are some places where if you go to in the south of France, it's hilarious because you can just go to these huge, big, almost like Costco's, and you see all these... uh, you know, winemakers, if you will, that are more like scientists and they're loading up their cart with all of these, you know, yeast strains that are flavored to get these, oh, this is to get a fruitier rosé and oh. <laughs> here's to change the color. Um, and it's not even at the end of the day when they add in like these 30, 40 different ingredients to stabilize it, to, to accentuate the strawberry fruit notes. Is that wine or is is that, you know, like a bag of Doritos? It's it's ridiculous. Um, and then they spend so much money on not only those additives and products, but labeling and PR and, you know, greasing palms. How is that real? Uh, to a simile, I don't think it is. Um, you know, and it's not these factory mass-made products. It's something that is honest, 
and true. And most of all, it's, it tastes like a place and the people that make it. Um, it expresses its terroir, its origins. Um, it's, uh, it's real. <laughs> it, it makes total sense to me. And it yeah. and has some sort of distinctive personality too, right? Like right. it doesn't taste just like the same thing that tastes somewhere else. But I guess if you're going to be expressive of the terroir and the place, then you have to be distinctive as well. Right. And I think that, you know, we were talking about champagne earlier as well. You know, so often some guests of mine will say, oh, as long as it has bubbles, I love it. Or as long as it's pink, I love it. And I think that's great when you're first starting in wine, right? Because we were all there. You know, when I first got into wine too, it was very much the same mentality. But you evolve from there, right? And you realize that, no, not all bubbles taste the same. And not all pink wine tastes the same. Just like not all red and white wine does. So then you have to differentiate. And I think the cool thing now is if you walk around some really great New York restaurants with people that are supporting grower Rosé, like at Loring Place or Charlie Bird or Fausto. Thank you very much. Um, you mm. actually see that like these, there's, it's not just, oh, Rosé, here's the one pour we have. It's Rosé and this is Chair Swallow and it comes from Abruzzo and that's why it's different. It tastes like XYZ. That's great. I (laughs) love that. I love that. So we're going to actually take a quick break. Uh, We'll be back with more with Victoria James of Coat Restaurant, Drink Pink, and Real Rosé right after this. This is the story of men and women who shed not only their clothes, but also their... I'm Souther Teague of Moria Margo and co-host of The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, a new and unexpected modern malt for the everyman. The whiskey is made from 100% Irish malted barley, triple distilled for smoothness in copper pot stills, and consciously aged for four years in Oloroso sherry butts. My favorite part about the Sexton is that sherry influence from those Oloroso sherry butts. They're the large sherry uh, barrels that have been used. And then the, uh, the whiskey gets aged in them for four years, giving them this sort of nutty, almost savory quality. Um, the copper pot still makes for an extremely smooth finish. Um, I like it in a highball or just neat. Uh, every time I have a sip, I, I want another one. So next time you're gathered with friends or posted up at your favorite bar, reach for The Sexton, the best-selling Irish single malt in North America. You can learn more at thesexton.com. We are back on In The Drink, and I just want to remind everyone that we are currently doing our summer fund drive on June 19th through July 31st. Help us raise $25,000 to become HRN members. It's definitely worth doing. It allows all of us to uh, produce this great uh, 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 
podcast and uh, would love to have you guys there. If you donate uh, starting at $25, you get all sorts of great uh, little member gifts like a custom ringtone created by Jack Inslee, who is our original engineer. Um, and it gets better from there. $50 gets you an HRN pin. $125 gets you a t-shirt. And uh, $250 gets you one year subscription to Cherry Bomb Magazine, which is awesome. And uh, if you do $1,000, you get an HRN studio tour and lunch at Roberta's. You can see where all of this magic is made. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Uh, donate today. Um, we are here uh, in the studio with Victoria James, and uh, we've been sipping on this absolutely beautiful rosé and uh, all, all morning long so far. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if you can tell us what you've brought in the studio for us. Yeah, so this is from Provence, and I think it's a great example of what can be done. And another great thing that I try to tell um, consumers is to not necessarily look at Provence in general, but at the small little villages within it that make uniquely uh, wonderful products. So this is from Bendel, which is a village, probably the most famous village within uh, Provence. It's a small Mediterranean town and where they make Bouillabaisse and Pisel Dier. And Rosé is kind of the best wine to drink with all of these local foods. It can go with everything from uh, artichokes, anchovies, aioli. And this is from a cult producer called Domaine de Gros Neray. And they're right by Domaine Tampier, which a lot of people have heard about. And um, a lot of people will argue that Gronoray has actually surpassed Tampier in quality. What? I know. Insider crazy. info right here. Insider info. Um, it's, it's, it's much more readily available. Uh, Tampier is great. Um, but this is another great example just nearby. And I think it really shows you what good rosé can be. It's made in the old school method. Um, so it goes through mallow, which gives you that creamy mouthfeel. It's not blocked. Um, old oak is used, so it has this roundness to it. Um, it's really a food rosé, and it's real. It's delicious. I mean, it, I can see that there. My mouth is watering. There's lots mm -hmm. of acidity and minerality. Uh, but I wouldn't be mad at sipping this by the pool as well. Mm. I think it, I, it for sure will stand up to some good food, but this is delicious as is. Yeah, too. so it's a pool sipper as well. And uh, I see that this is a wine imported by Kermit Lynch. Um, you can all, if you, we work with a lot of Kermit Lynch wines at Fausto. Anytime you see Kermit Lynch uh, there, it's always going to be a high quality wine. Um, I know your fiance works at, yeah. uh, at Kermit. But uh, Rosé, I feel like, is along with Beaujolais, mm -hmm. sort of some of the, the vision, like true visionary things that, that Kermit did. It's like bringing in some good rosés, bringing in Tampier right. before there was really a market, like creating a market for good Beaujolais, creating a market for rosé, for right. high quality rosé that didn't exist there. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's true. And especially with um, Beaujolais too, a lot of people did not know that he brought in the Gang of Four way before Georges de Boeuf did his Nouveau project. And rosé, he's always been a huge proponent. So a lot of consumers are unsure. Well, you know, they they say that you should ask for real rosé, but what does that mean? And so I think you just gave a really great bit of advice, Joe, is that to always look for the importer. Um, and so if you're a consumer and you're just getting into the wine world, I would say ask your retail shop owner or your sommelier for grower rosé, so it's made by the people that actually tend the vines, 
And if the sommelier or the retail shop person does not know what a grow rosé is, you should just leave and <laughs> just walk out because that's a, definitely a problem. And then you should also find importers you like. Because when you, f- when you follow an importer, it's almost as if you're following, you know, a curator. Um, so, for example, if you like natural wines and things that are, like, funky, look for Louis Dresner wines, right? Um, or if you want things that are classic and traditional, Kermit Lynch. Um, and so there's these importers that put together a portfolio of wines. And if you like their style, you'll probably like 90% of the wines in their book. And the importer labels on the back. So you just turn it around and you can almost go through a wine shop like that. That's, that's really helpful advice. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so yeah, this is one of my favorite roses. So I'm glad we could share it today. Hot tip right there. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, I want to ask you about a couple of my favorite roses, um, and see if there are any that you also think are sort of like icons, like Holy grail roses. For Mm -hmm. me, it's one that I actually poured by the glass at Anfora, um, back in 2002. 10, I want to say. And we had what seemed like an endless supply that just dried up of the Lopez de Heredia Rosado Gran Reserva 2000 vintage. Holy moly. It was by the and wholesale cost was about 15 and a half dollars, somewhere in like that range. And uh, and then one day I just went to reorder and they're like, sorry, uh, we're sold out. And the next release will be in a about eight years, but um, <laughs> we haven't seen it yet. It hasn't been released again yeah, yet. Yeah, I think I had the 2004 recently, and okay. it was like a, a hidden away bottle. And it's, it's, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I think it really can show you how rosé can age. And another great example of that is uh, Closey Bone from Provence, mm-hmm. um, which they age for a couple years before even releasing it, just like Lobus de Heredia does. And you know, Lopez de Heredia doesn't even make it every year. Um, and Cheriswola Valentini. And there's so many great examples really age-worthy, yeah. that are like incredibly age-worthy and really great. And so I think those are like three classic cult producers that definitely defy the norm. Now, let's talk about, uh, and I've actually had uh, a Medio Pepe Cheriswola back to the oh, 2000 yeah. vintage, which is not imported, but ages extraordinarily well. Ugh. But maybe wines that are made to drink a little bit more readily mm-hmm. um but are made well mm-hmm. uh and uh, i found i don't know if you've seen this at cope but i found at fausto with the kind of rainy you know hit or miss spring that we had people haven't been drinking as much rosé uh this year and so i have a sense that a lot of these 27 2017 rosés people are going to uh be drinking next year in 2019 as well and we're still drinking some 2016s yeah. that were maybe meant to drink soon mm-hmm. and i don't think that's a necessarily a bad thing but what i mean what are your thoughts on this yeah so i'm divided i think that one rosé can be age worthy and mm-hmm. it's okay to drink it year round it's okay to drink it with a year's two years three four years worth of age but on the flip side, it's also a bad thing. And the reason for that is because a lot of the rosé that's made nowadays is actually rushed to market. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is that it's made, it has to be finished fermentation, everything, a complete product by like December, which is super unnatural. And it doesn't naturally happen that way. So what do they have to do? Well, fill in the blanks. Um, and then January, they literally have to ship it. 
mm-hmm. which is crazy because so many of these wines are not stable. So you have to do things to stabilize them. And then it drops into port here and then it goes to the distributor, importer, what have you. They send out price lists and sommeliers and buyers across the country rush to get their summer by the glass pour secured and they'll do deals to get, you know, case breaks, etc which is fine and everything, but what's happening to this rosé? Well, it's no longer real. It's forced to market because it only has two or three months that it can sell, according to a lot of importers and buyers, because they're also paranoid that if they still have rosé in their warehouse or on their wine list come September 1st, they're fucked because they can't sell it till the next year and then they're sitting on inventory. And then the next year, oh, buyers always want the fresh product. Mm -hmm. They don't want to buy 2016 rosé. And so it's this really horrible thing that's happening is that too much rosé is being rushed to market and it's not ready. And those rosés are not age-worthy because they fall apart like a brie you've left out on the counter. It's like quickly within a few months, you're like, oh, no, this is, you know... This is not good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think I'm very divided and there's two camps. And this is why so many great cult producers like Gros Noray were drinking. This literally, I bought this a week ago for my restaurant. It wasn't released until two weeks ago. And Domaine Tompier doesn't even come out until next month, which is a luxury they have because it's going to sell and they're a cult producer. Unfortunately, not a lot of producers have that luxury because they're worried they won't be able to sell their product. So how do we change this? Well, as sommeliers and buyers, stop buying freaking rosé in January. Right. <laughs> and wait. And, you know, the demand mm-hmm. will eventually change. But I think that we're trying to support rosé, which is great. But if you're supporting rosé that was rushed to market, you're doing everyone a disservice. It's very strange when it's like snowing outside <laughs> and you get that email from a distributor and they're yeah. like, here's your allocation of this, of this wine. Do you want it? Like, you know, do you want this rosé for like, are you going to pour it for the summer? And I'm, I'm like, like, what? Like, I, it's like the one, the one wine where I found that in order to get producers that I want, like I have to, you have to sort yeah. of commit to it before tasting it. And, and that doesn't feel right as someone who's buying and curating a list. You right. want to make sure that, the quality is up to your standards. Right. And it's, it's almost as if saying like, oh, this new white burgundy is being released. Do you want it now? And you're like, no, I don't want it now. I want it when it's ready. It's ready to drink, yeah. So, yeah, hopefully that changes. But I think that good rosé made well can age. And I don't think people should be afraid to drink it. How do you know? Like, how do you know what's going to, what's rushed to market and what's like, what's the good rosé? Like we had uh, at, at Fausto, we had the Jolie Laid Valdegui Rosé mm-hmm. 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it's, we just moved into 2017 mm-hmm. and the 16s are freaking great. They're yeah. delicious. I loved it. I mean, I think that, you know, the biggest thing is you have to trust your palate as a sommelier. And so let's say you love a rosé that you taste in spring save a bottle and taste it again in October. How does it taste? Is it falling apart? Well, then that answers your question because Mm -hmm. if you got an offer for it also in January, what does that tell you? Um, So, you know, I I get it and I understand why these producers feel like they're forced to rush it to market and it sucks. And, you know, I'm definitely on their side, but I think that as buyers, we have to be the one that changes the demand. Um, And you just, as consumers, you have to trust your sommeliers and that's why your sommeliers have to be trustworthy and, um, you know, do diligence. I love it. And you really think drinking rosé year-round, you drink it in the winter, too? Year-round. 
you're around just like a sipper in the, or like with food and you're preparing a dinner and sipper with food. I mean, listen, there's something intrinsically charming about drinking rosé poolside or on the beach. I won't deny that. And my consumption of rosé skyrockets in the summer, but I do think it's a shame to relegate it only to the warmer months. I agree with you. I drink it all year round too. Mm. I love it. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Victoria. It's been so great having you back on the show. Thank you for having me, Joe. Uh, I really want to encourage all of our listeners to go visit Victoria at Cote. It is such a great restaurant. The food's outstanding. The wine list is incredible. Um, I, I just love it. I mean, it's <laughs> it's like everything I love about a Korean barbecue restaurant, except with extremely high-quality meat, a really well-chosen wine list, and a beautiful setting, and great cocktails. Like, it's it's just it's just fantastic. I love it. Um, and I want to thank you in the drink listeners for joining me this week. Uh, if you like in the drink and want to help the show out, please rate us and review and subscribe on Apple podcasts. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to talk about on the show, feel free to shoot me an email at, uh, let's say Joe at Fausto Brooklyn.com. I'll check that out. Uh, I also <laughs> want to thank our engineer, Dave Tadishore. It's the man who's been doing this for years with us. Thank you. And our producer, Jessamine Molly. Hope to see you guys at Fausto. And until next time, thanks for listening to In the Drink. Love and feel it sing. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Love it, baby, sing it.